This episode of the Better Every Shift podcast is brought to you by Lexipol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Now let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Better Every Shift podcast. You are listening to the second part with Captain Ben Vernon. Um, If you have not heard the first part, uh, you must go listen to the Better Every Shift podcast with Captain Ben Vernon. Ben is a a captain paramedic with San Diego Fire Rescue Department. And on June 24th, 2015, while responding to a routine medical assistance call, uh, Ben was stabbed multiple times by a bystander. And that incident led to him um, becoming a champion for first responder PTSD recognition and treatment. And the first part uh, really describes the physical toll and the the scenario and the scene, and it breaks down the actual um, event happening. And um, when we last talked to Ben, he had now started to transition into maybe more the mental side. The painkillers were where the painkillers were wearing off. And now the reality sets in. So we want to just dig into the second part of the recovery with Ben. And with me, as always, is Janelle Fasquette. Janelle, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Aaron. Excited to hear Ben's uh, a continuation, obviously, as, as I am. And we have again, and there's Ben up in the corner with us. How are you doing, Captain? Good to see you. You too, sir. Good to see you. Welcome back. And I was trying to highlight just what we were talking about in the first episode and it's, it's tough, um, you know, for one, being a first responder and then two, watching that firsthand. And you, you gave an, uh, just an unbelievable play by play. But what still gets me is that part didn't bother you at all. It was when you started to talk about how everyone else responded and, and um, you know, your partner and how they stepped up and basically saved you, you know, jumped the barrier. And uh, to me, that's what really stuck out. And again, if you have not heard uh, that first part, but as you were describing just all those feelings, you started to kind of get into, um, you know, the mental side of stuff. Now um, we left off, you were having nightmares and and you're now stuck with the reality of your spouse, right? And um, so after the nightmares, opiates are off, what's kind of your mental status and state at that point? Yeah, it's, pre- it's pretty dark, to be honest. Um, I'm in a world of hurt. I can't sleep. Uh, and if I do sleep, I'm having horrific nightmares, waking up screaming. And that's that's kind of where we left off. Um, and then I believe we talked about the news released the video. They, they showed it on television, uh, my attempted murder in slow motion. Um, and the thing I always tell people, you know, when you go through an event like that, you play it in your head in slow motion. And, and I had been reliving it every minute of the day, breaking it down in slow motion, just revisiting it. So for them to put it on television in slow motion and practically from my point of view, because the guy who was wearing a body camera was standing right behind me. I mean, it was surreal. It was the most surreal experience to see my attempted murder from my viewpoint, right? In slow motion, the way I'd been thinking about it. It's pretty wild. Um, and but that's I'll be honest- first- that's the first time you saw it was on, on the news sitting there with yes. your wife yeah. <laughs> on TV. I didn't know. I, I never realized the guys, the, the security guards around me were wearing body cameras, 
And I didn't know when I was getting assaulted that one of them was standing right behind me filming it. So it was, it was, there were so many surprises on that, you know, on television and seeing it in slow motion. I'm like, oh my God, like this is amazing. But the greatest part of that is I realized that I had a get out of jail free card um, because, you know, I had gotten hundreds of calls and emails and texts asking if I was, I was okay. When that video got released, people started driving to my house mm-hmm. and they were knocking on my door and they were looking me in the eye and they're going, man, are you okay? And I realized they weren't asking if I was physically okay. They were asking if I was mentally okay. And I suddenly realized I had a get out of jail free card. I could go get mental health help and no one would make fun of me. You know, because the stigma across this country is if you ask for mental health help, you're weak. Or if you ask for mental health help, you can't be trusted, right? And suddenly I'm like, man, anyone can see this video. We'll, we'll totally understand if I go get get therapy, you, you know? And I, I remember this kind of this burden release of like, oh man, I, I can go get help. And and I could even tell people I'm getting help and no one will make fun of me. And I thought, that's this is great. Like, awesome, right? Oh, cool. I get to go help get help. Um, and you mentioned something about jail. And I just wanted to uh, and try to get this point across too. You had said that where you got stabbed, um, and, and, and how did that how did that part come about? Like how yeah, so, the person stabbed you? Well, <laughs> so I didn't know this for almost probably a year and a half after the incident, but I, I started to travel and speak and share my story and show the video because it it gets immediate buy-in, right? I can tell this story to any first responder. I show the video and everyone's like, okay, like we'll listen to what you have to say. Well, I had been invited to speak to Department of Corrections officers and that was new for me. I'd never spoken to prison guards before. Well, I gave my presentation and I showed the video and every firefighter, police officer, nurse, I mean, anyone I share the story with, every time I get stabbed, everyone groans. And they all go, oh, God, like, ooh, and they kind of react. The guards had a weird look on her face, kind of like a golden retriever. When you tell them something, they kind of looked sideways. They were like, huh. And I noticed it when I was giving my presentation, but I didn't say anything. And when it was over, I gave this at a prison. And they said, hey, man, can we show you a video? And I, I said, yeah. So when I was done, they got a video, and it was of a prison yard. And it was kind of up you know, from where the tower is looking down in the yard and it's this film and you see some guys are playing handball, some guys are lifting weights, but there are three or four guys, prisoners over near a, like a pole and they have like pencils in their hands and they're hitting the pole three times, low, medium, high, low, medium, high, low, medium, high with these pencils. And I said, what are they doing? And he said, oh, they're practicing to shank us. He said, we wear vests in the prison yard. So they stab us right above the belt, below the vest, going for the kidney, in the armpit where our vests don't protect us, and in the head. And they said, when we saw the video of your guy stabbing you, he hit you in those three spots. And they said, that was a prison shank. You got prison shanks from a guy who's been in prison who knows how to kill guards. And I I just, I remember first being like amazed and blown away by how gnarly that is. And then second, like how badass I am that I survived a prison shank, right? Like I went up against a prison trained knife fighter and lived. I felt pretty cool about that. But 
holy crap that was that was yeah that was gnarly chills up your spine to think about that like can we just take a second prison guards how badass do you have to be to be a prison guard I mean, they are surrounded at all times by the gnarliest killers, and they just walk around with them, like. And they're uh, watching them train. Train to kill them. To kill them, like. <laughs> Come on, man! No, no, Not hell no! That is it's, wild. And so you you learn this, but the, you've already at that point you you've recovered, you know. But like, there's there's uh, there's spots along the way that probably triggered you. Um, you know, you had mentioned previously, like, Hey, I kind of got this. Now everybody would understand if I got help. Yeah. And, and so that's going through, but like help is a process, right? Like this recovery is a process. You learning that you got shanked, prison shanked, probably set back, set you back a little bit, like triggered you. I, um, your chief was kind of telling us, um, a story about how you were, you were, um, uh, presenting and, and something triggered you there, right? So this is, it's a whole process. What was the first step to this? Yeah, great question. So um, I'd like to say I went and got help immediately and it was a piece of cake and I recovered very fast. But the truth is the very first person I reached out to, you know, I, I reached out to my department and I asked for workers comp because I, you know, this was a workers comp injury. And at this point in my career, right? I know nothing about mental health help. And neither does my department, right? We, we don't have anything in place, nothing. We don't have a peer support team. We don't have therapists. We don't have chaplains. We got nothing. So I said, well, this is workers' comp. I'll call workers' comp. And the city is very accommodating. They sent me four names with phone numbers. No specialty, just these are workers' comp therapists. So, okay. So I call the first number and the voicemail of the guy said, hey, I've been retired for two years I'm not taking anyone else. Please stop calling. And that should have been a red flag, but you know, I'm desperate. I haven't slept in a couple of weeks. I, I'm at the point of, you know, suicide. I mean, this is getting, it's getting bad. You know, I'm, I'm in bad shape. So I just called the second number and the guy says, you know, I can't see you until Friday. It's, it was like a Tuesday. And I remember saying, you know, it's not a problem. As long as I know help is on the way, I haven't slept in, a, you know, a week or two or whatever. But it's okay because I, I I can go three more days. Like as long as I, I get help, like I'm good. And so I went into my very first therapist, and I never met one. I don't know what they look like. I kind of had a a guy with like a beard in mind, and he had a tweed jacket with elbow patches, you know. And I realize I'm I'm expecting Sigmund Freud. A pipe, maybe. A pipe, yes. And I want that half couch, you know, where you lay on the couch and the guy sits behind you. This that's kind of what I'm picturing in my head, and I'm yep, very with excited. A yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then she, hmm, tell me more. Tell me more. So that's in my head. That's what I get. Well, I, I met my very first therapist on a Friday. And Zam, he was little. There's nothing wrong with being little. I just wasn't expecting it. Like this dude was so short, you could see his feet and his driver's license picture. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> he's tiny, tiny. And I'm telling you, the door to his office, just the bottom half opened up. And this dude walked out through the bottom half of his door. And I remember just like kind of getting down on my knees. And I'm like, are you my therapist? And I picked him up and carried him back to the office. (laughs) You know, like, and it was fine. But I was just a little like, whoa, okay. But he told me, he goes, hey, man, I'm excited to work with you. I've never worked with a firefighter before. I work with car accident victims. 
And I said, doc, this is great. I've never worked with a therapist before. I also work with car accident victims. Like, let's, let's do this, right? It's a match made in heaven. And he goes, all right, well, what's wrong? And I said, I don't even have to tell you. I can show you. And I pulled out the video and I showed him the, on my phone, I showed him my attempted murder. And he said, my God, you know, that guy tried to kill you. So, you know, how can I help? And I said, well, I'm having nightmares where I eat this guy's face. And Zam, you should have seen the look on his, like he was scared of me. And I realized I missed an opportunity. I could have been like, you look tasty and scared the <laughs> shit out of him. But I didn't. I was, but he goes, oh, well, Ben, if you're having trouble sleeping, just lay off the caffeine. Yeah, just lay off. Just that's it. It's got to be it. That's right. And I, I mean, at this point, now I'm like looking at the credentials on his wall because I'm like, you're a therapist. Like, this is real. Like, this is your, and I'm mad. You know, I'm thinking it's probably the knife in my chest, not the coffee in my stomach, you asshole. Right. Like, I'm, I'm frustrated. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, our, my first session was kind of a letdown and I walked out. And I'm like, well, that was pointless. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, the best therapy for us is us. And so I didn't, I just figured, you know what I need to do is sit at the kitchen table around the, you know, around the dining room table and smoke a joke with the guys. They'll tease me. Um, but it'll, it'll help me decompress. You know, that's what I need. Cause I'm, I'm very wound up and I'm very jumpy and I'm very angry and I can't sleep. And so I'm frazzled. And so I drove to the nearest firehouse and, you know, we have almost 60 fire stations. Yeah. I didn't look at the roster. I just drove to the nearest one and I walk in the kitchen and it happens to be one of my academy mates. And this guy, I mean, we're, we're good buddies. His wife and my wife have, you know, we've double dated. Like he's, he's one of my boys and I see him in the kitchen and I get very excited and he sees me, he gets excited. And as a joke, he pulls a knife on me. And it's funny. It's funny. But the way I kind of describe it, you know, is the front of your brain makes rational decisions and your base brain, right, is your fight or flight. And up until June 24th, 2015, my base brain would listen to the front of my brain and just, you know, the front of my brain would go, do we need to fight? No, yes, no. Okay, let's do it. Or no, we're good. Well, I'm at the point now where the, my base brain doesn't listen. I, I'm in no control of myself. And so he pulled a knife and I went into full fight or flight and I dropped like into position ready to kill. And he saw that and he's like, Oh man, I'm so sorry. And he put the knife away. And I, I apologize to him. And I go, look, I, I came in unannounced. This is my fault. You know, good joke, but I got to go. And I ran out of there and I, I got in my car and I drove home and I was, I was crying because I didn't, I was out of control. And mm -hmm. I was, I was at my wits end, you know, just stressed out. Um, and you're physically not recovered a hundred percent yet either too. Correct. So you still have some of those, but you know, but, the, the, the wounds that are really affecting you aren't, aren't the physical, right. you know? Right. Um, and you had mentioned in our first episode, we talked about like, we're firefighters, like, uh, yeah, my arm, it, it might be broke, but I can still, I'm good. I can go back to the fire. I'm, I can do my job. Right. And we, right. we, we somehow, you know, uh, in, in most cases, not, uh, wisely do that, but physically you're not even concerned too much about that. Right. At right. this point, you're just thinking, right. man, my wires are crossed. Something's going on. Yes. I'm crossed. I, and I'm afraid that if I go back to work, the next patient that even looks at me funny, I'm going to kill him. Right. I'm, I'm, I am that wound up, right. That wound tight. And I'm, I'm not in control of my emotions, right. A buddy of mine pulls a knife as a joke and I'm ready to kill him. 
And it's like, this is not me. I'm what is happening? And I don't know how to fix it. Um, and this went on for, for another couple of weeks of trying to deal with this workers comp therapist. Um, and it's not going well. And, and I'll tell you that at some point, you know, suicide really became an option. I hadn't slept in so long. And I remember just thinking, if I don't figure this out or find a way to sleep, I own a gun and, and then I'm going to sleep forever and, and that'll be fine. You know? Um, but Sam, I, I remember I was sitting in the dark, right? It's like two in the morning. And I remember thinking, okay, I have to get to 201. You know, I got to get to 201. And so I'm sitting there and then I watched the clock and it clicked over to 201. And I just went, oh my God, I have to get to 202. Like, oh, this isn't good, right? And I remember thinking, how did I get here so fast? And, And I consider myself mentally tough. I think most firefighters are mentally tougher than most. And and I used to think, you know, suicide is weakness. But here I am, I'm like, man, I'm I'm tougher than most and I'm ready to end it. Like and it only took me what? At this point a month, 6 weeks to get there. And I remember kind of laughing at myself like, wow, man, you are not as tough as you thought you were and it's only been 6 weeks and you're ready to end it all. And then I kind of laughed at myself too. I like, you know, the guy tries to kill you misses and then you kill yourself like that's that doesn't even make sense at all and so i just had this desperation you know i was so desperate like how do i get out of this hole that i'm in um and it was at that point i remembered you know we talk about the value of peer support my department didn't have a peer support team but i knew one guy in my job a guy named james shindell and his nickname was shooter because he was a former CHP officer and he got in a gunfight with a guy and killed him. Way cooler nickname than any nickname I've ever had. Um, but I, I remember one time they asked him, you know, hey man, what was it like in the shooting? And and he was always very um, candid and, and shared everything about the story. And, you know, he was on probation after me. And every time, you know, we'd bounce through the same station, he's on probation. When the guys learned who he was, they would sit him down at the morning meeting I go, you got to tell us how you killed a guy, you know, and they make him tell the story. Well, one time, one time someone said, well, hey, man, you know, obviously you're here now as a firefighter. You're no longer a cop. So what happened? You know, like you survived the shooting, but how did you end up leaving CHP and joining us? And he said that after the shooting, uh, they brought him into an office, you know, they gave him some water and they said, sit tight. A police psychologist is going to come talk to you. And a police psychologist came in the room. These two guys had never met. And the psychologist said, hey, you've been in a shooting. You killed a guy. Let me outline the next six months of your life. And he said, you know, do you have a girlfriend? And Shooter said, yeah. And he said, well, you're you're probably going to break up with her. You know, like Hmm. statistically speaking, your relationship won't last. And he's like, hey, man, I just met you. Like, fuck you. You know, but he's like, no, no. Statistically speaking, you're going to break up with her. And he goes, every time a car backfires, you're going to hit the deck. No. He said, you're going to have horrific nightmares. And he said, everyone you meet who's a stranger, you're going to be convinced is related to the guy you shot. Like, you're just going to be on this roller coaster. It's not going to be fun. And then Shooter told us, like clockwork, everything the guy said came true. And so in my head at two in the morning, when I'm thinking about swallowing a bullet, I remember thinking, well, Shooter's been here. He's been through this. He won his fight, but it ended his career. But at least he could tell me, you know, what, what's going on. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I I drove I, I drove to his station. I waited till you know eight a.m. and I found him on the roster, and I drove to the station, and I went to him, and I said, hey, man, you got to help me, you know, like, outline this for me. You know, what what's the timeline? You know, what are the symptoms? How do I get out of this? You know, how did you get out of it? And and he was really cool, man. He listened. He was very calm. He was, you know, he, he sympathized, but he said, brother, this is beyond my skill set. He goes, why don't you go see a police psychologist? And I remember thinking, well, duh, like – of course, that's such a better plan. Yeah. So he gave me an old, he pulled an old tattered business card out of his wallet with, with the company. And, and in San Diego, there is a third party vendor called Focus Psychological Services. And they, they, the city of San Diego pays them specifically just to work with cops. And it is free to the police. They can go as many times as they want, unlimited access. Uh, they can go into retirement. Anyone that lives in their home can see the therapist as well. So they are like just this catch-all for all things PD. So I called and I talked to a guy named Dr. Mark Foreman. And I said, hey, you know, we spoke on the phone. I said, look, I need your help. I can't pay you. You know, I workers' comp won't cover me. My insurance won't cover this. I said, but if you will help me, just keep track of the bill. And I swear to God, when I get back to work, I will pay you back. You know, just please don't turn me away. And he said, hey, man, I'll, you know, just get in here. Don't worry about the bill. Um, and so I, I immediately drove down and I went to his office and I met him. And the first thing I realized, uh, he was full size. He was a full size, <laughs> which I really liked. I was like, this, hey, this is a good start. It's a good start. We're seeing eye to eye here. I like this yep. already. Uh, but he says, hey, man, I'm, you know, I'm excited to work with you. He goes, I've never worked with a firefighter before. And I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. But he said, but I used to be a cop. He goes, I was San Diego PD uh, a lieutenant. And he goes, I retired. And then I went to school to become a therapist. He said, so, so step into my office. And so I did. And he goes, well, what's up? You know, why are you here? You sound pretty bad on the phone. I said, I don't need it to tell you. I can just show you. And I pull out the video. I show him the phone. And he goes, my God, that guy tried to kill you. And then he asked me, hey, man, how are your nightmares? Mm. Man, it is hard to describe the the sense of relief that like, oh, yeah, I found the right. Like, thank God I found the right guy. Like, he knows why I'm here. I don't even have to tell him. And that the emotion you're feeling, is that just because when you retell the story, you kind of go back to that spot and you're like, thank God it was this guy. But it goes back to, uh, helping me. Yeah. For no reason. You know, Uh, I mean, he could have said, sorry, bud, you know, we don't have a contract with you or, Hey man, I'm, I charge 150 an hour or, you know, whatever it was, but, Good people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Had, had you Went tried to talk to anybody to before him other than the other psychologists, like your spouse, friends? Had God, you? No. no. No, I'm in my own little world of hurt. And honestly, and, and I mean, we'll talk about my wife later and then I'll really cry. Uh, she is not in my world, right? Like 
I am in this dark place and I don't know. I, I feel like I'm all alone and I don't know what to do and I don't know what's happening to me and I don't know where to go for help. And I reach out to see a therapist only because my my ego and my reputation won't be harmed uh, because it's on video. You know, and I feel like if that wasn't on video, I, I wouldn't have had the courage to go get help, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm going from. I'm just I'm trying to get but I have these blinders on, you know, I, nothing else in my periphery. Just how do I get out of this hole? Um, and so finding this doctor was amazing. And, and then of course he really started teaching me a lot about how the brain works and how mental health and, and that sort of thing. Um, usually when I travel and I share my story, he, he's a good half of my talk of just all the stuff he taught me. Um, and I don't know how much you want to go into it, but, um, he really pulled me out of the hole, you know, yeah. best I can describe it. What's, uh, you know, you, you, you talk about him with just a sincerity and, and the, an emotion of gratitude. Take us through a little bit, like, you know, the next couple of weeks, uh, did you see some, like, did you feel relief right away? Did you feel regrets, you know, kind of take us through just the first part of this, the counseling process. Yeah. Well, so almost immediately he wanted to do a treatment called EMDR. Mm -hmm. I have never heard of EMDR. I don't know what this is. And he said, look, you know, we're going to go through the story uh, and I'm going to stop you every now and then. And I'm going to wave my fingers back and forth in front of your eyes. And the first time, you know, I, I, he said, so what's the first thing you remember about that story? And I said, well, you know, I'm in the kitchen. Alex and I are prepping chicken. We're cutting the fat off chicken, getting ready to make dinner. It's about 4 p.m. And the tones go off and we see the ticker tape and the ticker tape is the address of the trolley stop. And remember from part one. We'd already been there three times this day. So we have that damn address memorized. And we yeah. saw the address and we're like, God, grr, right? Like, damn it. And then I slide down the pole and I look at the notes and it says, you know, babysit a drunk guy uh, until an ambulance can get there is basically what it says in the notes. And I'm groaning. And then we get in the rig and we're driving and we're talking about everything but the call. You know, we're, we're talking about how the chargers are leaving and we're noticing beautiful women walking by. And, you know, our head's not in the game. And I was very angry about that. And he says, okay, stop. Think about that and follow my fingers. And he waves them back and forth in front of my eyes. And, you know, I'm just sitting there looking at him. And my first thought is, oh, this dude's trying to hypnotize me. Right? Like, this is, this is a, like, hypnotism. And so I, I kind of fold my arms. And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Like, I'm not down with this. And he said, it's not therapy, man. Or, you know, it's not hypnos, hypno. I'm not trying to hypnotize you. Just trust me. Okay, fine. So I follow his fingers. And I remember being angry that I wasn't ready. But while I'm sitting there, I'm thinking like, but logically, no firefighter in the history of our department since 1889 has ever been shot or stabbed in the line of duty. So driving to that call, why would I be ready for something like that? Right. And, and I remember just kind of logically having that thought. And I remember my anger dissipated a little bit. And then I, and then he goes, okay, carry on. And so then I said, well, we got there. I said, I grabbed my gear. I grabbed the drug box. I grabbed the airway bag, you know, and I grabbed um, the monitor, monitor, drug box, airway bag. 
And he said, okay, stop thinking about that. And he's waving his fingers in front of my face. And I remember being very angry at myself. I didn't bring the trauma back. And I needed that trauma back to save Alex, to save myself. And I left that on the rig. And I was very angry. And, and I was pent up, you know, rage, really. But as he's waving his fingers back and forth in front of my face, I remember thinking logically, hey, man, we don't bring the trauma bag to a medical aid where the guy is standing, walking, talking, and is not a trauma. Yeah. For the third time, too, right? Right. Like, you know. Right. And I, I remember I had this little bit like, oh, like that's, I didn't, that wasn't laziness or complacency. That's policy. We don't bring it. Right. And, I, and so I didn't know what he was doing. And I didn't know why he was waving his fingers in front of my face. But I remember that first day our session ended and I was driving home and I felt lighter. I felt better. And I felt like my shoulders were just a little more relaxed. And as I'm driving home, I'm like, that dude just me would me, right? Like <laughs> wax on, wax off. Now you know karate. You know what I mean? I was like, what the fuck was that? Like, that yeah. was, what is happening? Well, that first night with him in EMDR, I slept for about four hours. I woke up screaming, but I didn't taste blood in my mouth and I wasn't soaked in sweat. And, you know, I was going to bed around 10 and I would wake up screaming at about 11. What, you know, it's two in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, I slept for four hours and I'm not tasting blood in my mouth. Like I immediately recognized healing. Yeah. Progress right there. Progress, immediate progress. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, what was that? I don't know what it was, but I want to do it again. And so then I was excited to go back. And I remember, you know, like, come on, come on. Like, let's, let's do EMDR. Like, come on. Um, and so it took us, you know, weeks to process every aspect of that call. And, and here's what I've learned, right? Logic is the left side of your brain. Emotion, the right side of your brain. Yeah. So when we go on calls, we shut off the right side and we go pure logic. It makes us ruthlessly efficient. And, and Zam, you know this, right? You run on an injured kid who's like critically injured and you are just methodical and it's it's a thing of beauty right it's giving the backboard giving the iv get on the radio step one step two step three step four and and you're just like firing on all cylinders well that's because you shut off emotion and, and your pure logic but but when you get off shift it takes almost 24 hours to turn the emotion back on and process calls process sorry process information with both sides of your brain well, for me, 24 hours after I get off shift, I'm right back on shift. So I can go a week or two without dealing with any of that emotion. You also have to get sleep in between that time yes. because that's where yes. you process yes. a lot yes. of this trauma. Yes. And that is the one thing I'm going to say again. You yes. also need sleep in order yes. to effectively process this trauma, which is where we can do four other shows, five other shows on why we are hurting ourselves. But, uh, but you've now discovered there's, there's progress. There's something here. There's a light. You've started to feel just a, a little bit better. You got a little sleep. Uh, did you, uh, how, how quickly were you seeing, um, you know, the doc, how, how, Dr. Mark, I mean, were you seeing him like every other day, every day at this point? I, I, if I remember early in our sessions, it was like two to three times a week. And I was living for that. I mean, it was, 
you know, I'd see him on Monday and then I was so bummed. I couldn't see him on Tuesday and I'd have to go back on Wednesday. You know, like I was like, I want, because I, after the second session, I slept five hours after the third session, six hours. And then I would wake up, but I wouldn't be sitting straight up. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and then I would, you know what I mean? And it was six hours. Then I'd wake up going, but that was it. It wasn't like, ah, you die. And, And so I was like, Oh my God, six hours uninterrupted. Like, I'm healing. I'm getting better. Um, and then when I kind of realized, and, and you know, sometimes I was like, "Hey, what is this? How is this working? Why is it working? This is so weird." And, but you said it, Sam. EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, is REM. It's REM sleep, rapid eye movement, and and of course, I have now become an absolute sleep guru, and I study all things sleep, and I track my sleep with my my Fitbit and I, I work with a sleep doctor uh, in Canada and, and I, I, I record every night what I've done and how, it, like I'm obsessed with it, but it is REM, you know, EMDR is REM and it's helping to realign your emotions with your, with your logic. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly, I just describe it as like this pressure relief valve where all that rage and anger just kind of just fizzled out after each session. I felt better and better. And, and at this time, you're going home, you're doing work, like you're doing physical work now, probably rehab, you're doing mental work now that you have a better grasp and you're not so this way. So now these, you, the blinders are opened up and here's your wife. Let's nope. dig into that. Not no, yet. No, I, buddy, God bless America. I'm all about me and I'm Still. my, I'm all about me. I, I go back to the doc and I go, buddy, I don't need to EMDR the stabbing. I'm now ready to EMDR. 20 years of calls like can we emdr others yeah and and so we do and i work through every call that has ever bothered me i emdr it and at that point i felt invincible right now i call my chief and i go chief i am so ready to go back to work like now i'm physically ready and i am mentally stronger than i have ever been because I have now offloaded every call that has ever bothered me. I'm in, I feel invincible, right? I'm like, oh my God, I've got mental armor. I've got, like, I am ready. So I go back to work and I go back to work with my crew and it is the four of us reunited. Alex came back to work a couple weeks before I did. The four of us are together. I am happy as a clam. I, it took me, I think, four months uh, from the time I got stabbed uh, by the time I got back to work to be four months. I kept seeing Dr. Foreman, though, Dr. Mark, because I was still a little nervous. I hadn't been in a fight yet. And I was, I, you know, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. There's still some lingering there you can sense, that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I feel pretty damn good. And I'm with my crew and I'm so happy. So I'm now back to work for a couple of weeks. I'm seeing Dr. Foreman and he says, Hey man, how's your wife doing with all this? And I, <laughs> to, <laughs> it, it didn't even occur to me, right? Like, and I was puzzled by the question and I go, Mark, what are you talking about, man? Like, She's fine. Like I, I'm back to work. What? What are you? What are you talking about? 
And he, you know, he and I had a really good relationship at this point. And he said, buddy, I love you, but you are so dumb. You know, he <laughs> goes, you're so stupid. And I was like, what? And he said, look, I want you to go home tonight. Oh, here we go. <clears throat> he goes, you turn off the TV. You cook your wife her favorite meal. And you sit her down and you ask, how are you doing now that you're back to work? And I, at this point, I'm like, yeah, all right, doc. You're like, whatever you want, man. Like, piece of cake. Like, how hard could this be? So I do. And uh, I sit her down at dinner. And I said, babe, how are you doing now that I'm back to work? She goes, fine. And I went, babe, seriously, how are you doing now that I'm back to work? And uh, she got really quiet. And then her lips started to quiver. And then she burst into tears. And she tells me that every day I leave to go to work, she would vomit from the stress. Sam, what kind of a husband doesn't know that his wife is vomiting from stress? And I got to tell you, man, uh, every now and then, I think I'm pretty smart. Every now and then. Most of the time, I think I'm pretty dumb. This was one of those moments where I felt about a quarter inch tall, and I felt just about the stupidest I have ever felt in my life. And I just could not believe that her well-being never crossed my mind. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I am you so ashamed. Sh- you, you, you sh- I mean, you should be ashamed of it. I mean, that's ashamed. That I, I've I've talked to you know you, you talk to a lot of firefighters. Like we, we are kind of we're kind of clueless. You know, you oh. can put a life saving oh. thing in front of us, and, and we're gonna <laughs> save a life. But when it's our own relationships, right? Like, we, oh, buddy, we, we we don't have, and I think that's part of the job, right? Like because we don't recover from the trauma, we lose that. That, that sense of reality, right? Like you had mentioned that. And that's reality is because I I, t- I told your story to like my family and they they were like, wow, what, how does his wife feel like that? That's my mom's like <laughs> first question. Yeah. And, I, and, that, and I, that wasn't even an option that I considered. And I'm no. just so embarrassed and ashamed that I was so self-centered, so self-centered. Uh, so focused on me and getting back to work and then getting back to work and being so proud that I made it back, right? That I survived it and just being in my own little world of like, I'm so stoked. And and so right away, I mean, I realized I screwed up, you know, like, oh boy, I'm backpedaling like crazy. And so I agreed to go to therapy with her and uh, I didn't want to see Foreman with her because I didn't, I thought that would be unfair. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted a female therapist just so I wanted my wife to feel more um, comfortable. And I'll tell you, man, that first couple of days of therapy was basically her just bawling and me feeling about a quarter inch tall. Um, but, you know, she finally, you know, the therapist helped her get, get it out. But, you know, she's like, why did you go back to the same station with the same crew? Like, 
right? Like, are you trying to die? Like you almost died and then you go back to the same place. Like, and for her, I mean, it was so obvious at that point. I'm like, right, that I could see why you would think that. That mm -hmm. makes complete sense. Wow. But, uh, I, wow. Hey, <laughs> I, I feel the same way you do. And Janelle's down there going, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And I go like, well, that's your crew. That's where you go. Right. That's, 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 right. that's what you, that's, you know, that's, those are your, your, those are the people that you work with, you're familiar with, you know, the territory, right. That that's what you do. Yes. Uh, but right. But yes. when you, when you can step away and go, logic says maybe, you know, I, I got hurt doing this, you know, you go, so go back and do the same thing. Right. Like, right. Um, right. Well, this. Go ahead. Jenna. From her perspective, had she tried to talk about it, but just noticed that you were shut down and gave up? Or was she essentially doing the same thing you were doing where she just compartmentalized herself in her own way? Was it like the two of you just like in your own worlds independently? I, yes. I mean, my wife uh, is, I think, the perfect firefighter wife in that she is so independent and self-reliant. Um, and she's also very introverted. She's very quiet. She's the opposite of me. And I'm loud and boisterous and she's very quiet, um, very independent, fiercely independent. Um, and so I think she was just kind of internalizing it. Um, I'll be honest though. I was so in my own little world. If she ever tried to bring it up, I doubt I picked up on it at all. Right. Like I doubt I was aware enough about anyone besides myself during this, during this um, time period that even if she brought it up, I, I'm sure I missed it, you know, I was just so in my own little world. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. So it, the therapy was amazing because it really got her to open up and, and make me realize like how terrible of her husband I'd been up until that point, regardless of even the stabbing, just learning how bad a husband I'd been and how self-centered I'd been. Um, God, it was helpful. <laughs> it was so eye-opening. <laughs> Yeah, we can be a little clueless. Well, we can be very clueless with this, yeah. you know. But but that probably brought you closer together. And, and we must know you're still together today, happily married. I think yes, sir. I, I want to make sure that she's been there. And and obviously, um, you know, you, you get emotional talking about that because she's one of the reasons why you're back and doing what you're doing. Um, yeah. and, and so now you're you're on the, the road to recovery mentally, physically, now in your relationship. Let's talk about just a couple of things that triggered you. And, you know, now, now that you're starting to see this progress, you're back at work. Uh, I know that you, you still, we had talked as an ongoing process. Do you remember some of those triggers and, and what happened? Oh, well, sure. So, um, you know, I got hurt in June, I'm back in October and the trial is in February mm -hmm. and he, here's a unique thing, right? We, I, I was told while I'm in the hospital bed from the detectives, Hey man, you know, this is going to trial, like, and you cannot talk to your crew about this. And then the DA, right, the, the prosecutor who's going after the guy that tried to kill us, he brought us into his office, you know, in October, November, December, keeping us up to date on what's going on. But he would reiterate, hey, man, you cannot talk about this call with your crew. You cannot get your story straight. Well, the and, they, and he told me, when your stories are identical, it looks weird right like it sounds weird 
and the jury can spot that you guys are synchronized. And he said, so you can't do that. And, and all four of us were hell bent on making sure this guy got justice. And so we didn't talk about it on the rig and we were it, but it was the quietest rig you've ever been on in your life because the four of us are together. We're close. All we want to do is talk about the stabbing. And so we would talk about anything and we would just sit quietly on the rig all day. It was weird. It was weird. Um, so I can tell you as, as it's getting closer and closer to trial, I could, I mean, the stress is coming up. Um, and, you know, there's pre-trial and, there, you know, the grand jury and there's all these things I don't know shit about court. But Probably media was there as well, right? Oh, God, media's this, everywhere. Yeah. Yep, they're all over the place. And so all of that was very stressful. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm a fire medic at this point. And I'm, I, I'm also noticing, you know, I'm a little shorter patients with my, with, with my patients. You know, I'm, I'm quick-tempered. I'm ready for a fight, even though I've feel good and i've processed the call i'm, I'm not going to get caught again and so i'm i'm very like short and curt and tense and you know just not a, i'm not a being a good patient advocate i'm i'm not and so you could argue i'm not healed because i'm i'm still very angry and, and ready to go right i'm always ready um and i would do my assessment with my hand in my back pocket because that's where my knife was you know what I mean? And I just have mm -hmm. my hand on my knife and I'm like, okay, let's talk. How are you doing? You know, you have chest pain, like what's going on? Right. So I'm, I'm you're, oh, you're on edge. You're on, I'm edge. on edge. Always. I'm on edge. So the, the actual, <laughs> the tipping point had to be, I was invited to gems magazine. They do a big conference mm -hmm. every year. Uh, EMS expo. Yeah. Well, I wrote an article for them. Uh, it was, uh, published in February of 2016, and I kind of shared the story that I like shared with you guys. Yeah. So you wrote an you wrote an article. You're at this conference, a nice and, conference. Uh, and and they're having you speak at this conference, right? Uh, actually, they roll out the red carpet. They bring Alex with me. Uh, we don't have to speak, and and I hadn't been. I'm not a professional speaker at this point. You know, I'm just. What's funny is I was on the cover of Jim's magazine, and at EMS Expo, the cover is there posters for the whole so my face is everywhere it's it was surreal it was a little weird but I, you know they roll out the red carpet and they treat alex and i to dinner and they're you know they bring us along to everything and they asked us if we wanted to be involved in they do these uh, paramedic games these competitions it's the wildest thing i've ever seen it's i've never done anything like it but they have these teams two to three person teams compete and, and they have to do assessments and they're timed and then their treatment and yeah, and run through actual scenarios, like actual scenarios, right? simulations. Yeah. Yeah. And so they said, Hey, do you and Alex want to volunteer to be actors in the final, you know, the, the final, the finale. And I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. And they said, okay, well the top three teams that have been competing all week get to do this big finale. They're going to have the whole conference comes in and watches these scenarios and there's like three to four thousand people in the stands you know watching this competition and they said we're going to do a big uh there's there's a band they hired a real band and they're on a stage and they're playing at a rock concert and the scenario goes is the the stage collapses and it turns into an mci so they had actors maybe 50 or 60 actors 
pretending to be fans and they had a stage with a real band. Like it was gnarly. Like the amount of money and time and effort was impressive. Um, and they said, you and Alex are going to be security guards. And I'm like, all right, cool. And they said, and so they had a, a railing up mm. between the stage and the people. And so all the people, and then there's a bunch of security guards and me and Alex are one of them. And they said, all right, look, you know, this is going to collapse. The team's going to come in. They're going to have to take care of everybody. And they said, we're going to have a guy with excited delirium. And you, you and Alex are going to engage and Alex will tase him. And I was like, oh, this sounds like fun, you know, cool. Well, we're doing this scenario. 4,000 people are watching. The band is playing. Alex and I are both standing on the other, you know, we're trying to be tough security guards. We're wearing shirts that say security. Um, there's 50, 60 people on the railing. <laughs> and and uh, and so then the lights kind of like go out and the stage collapses and everyone starts screaming and the, you know, and then all of a sudden there's mannequins everywhere and all these people are hurt. And, and then there's this guy with excited delirium and he's acting crazy. Well, without thinking, I jump over a railing mm. to engage him. And he starts coming at me and I put my hands up and I back up and I hit the railing without trying. And they weren't trying. They recreated my incident yeah. almost perfectly. I hit the railing and I go, <gasps> and Alex jump over the railing and tackles the guy. Like, and, and I didn't know what was happening. You know, I didn't recognize, but all of a sudden my heart rate went up, my blood pressure went up and I just had this instinct. I wanted to kill this poor kid who was an actor. And I remember just like, I, I mean, I was going to kill him. You know, I was ready to murder and Alex tackled the guy and he kind of looks up at me and we had this look and I'm like, and I realized what happened. I go, oh holy shit i'm right back at the trolley stop like what the hell and i ran out of the room and alex was right behind me and we run out of the lobby and we're just going what was that like you know what i mean and and i i broke down i started crying I, my heart rate went through the roof my blood pressure through the roof and you know i i've been back to work now for a few months you know october to february four months and i'm i i felt like i went right back to square one bawling crying you know blood pressure through the roof like ready to murder tasting blood in my mouth like like it started all over again oh, no. um and then you know alex and i alex you know made a joke and uh and he did i think he said like well that didn't go well right like <laughs> something sarcastic and it helped I, I started laughing immediately through my tears i'm laughing uh you know, then he picked me up off the ground and, and we went to a bar and, and got drunk. I flew home and I went right out of work, right? I, I'm back out, mental health, and I'm back at Foreman's office. And I'm just like, I, I thought I was good. Like, what happened? You know, and he said, well, come on, man. You know, like you were doing good. But to recreate the incident without you being prepared for it, he goes, that's like the worst thing you could have done. Yeah. Um, and so it took me another couple months to kind of back doing EMDR and working through my, my feelings and, and then getting back to work again in probably March or April. But in that moment had like, were you able to draw upon things that the Dr. Ford Foreman had shared with you in the past 
or would that stage sort of come later in the recovery? Yeah. So that, that came later in the recovery. I felt like that one kind of knocked me off my horse, you know, it mm -hmm. caught me off guard so much so that I felt like I had to start all over, but I didn't have to start all over. Right. Cause now I have all the building blocks. I know what I have to do. And I also, I was grateful that I learned I wasn't as healed as I thought I was. It slowed me down a bit. Went, okay, man, you need to spend more time in this therapist chair. You know, like you got some more work to do, like get back to it. Um, and then I'll tell you, it. I, I did, I got so good at mental health and I got so good at recovering that I had another incident where I was at Target and I was pushing uh, a cart and I didn't know this, but the people in the front um, were shorthanded. And so they paged the people in the back, like, hey, can we get more help? Well, their page tones mm, yeah, sound like exactly like our structure fire tones. And I'm walking and the tones went off and my heart rate jumped. And I went, <gasps> you know, and I was like, what the hell is happening? And I kind of doubled over and I went, ooh, I'm having a reaction. Like, what I'm, I've been triggered like what is it and so instead of being scared or caught off guard i was like i was like oh this is a game right like let's play a game what's triggering me right now like what set me off and so i was kind of i had my hands on both knees and i was like who right like trying to control my breathing and i was like what what was it you know what what's happening i was like looking around i'm like what triggered me and i'm looking for knives i'm looking for trolleys i'm looking right and then i heard the tones again and when I realized what it was, that's what triggered me. I started laughing um, and then it all went away because I I knew what it what it got me. And it then it was fun. It was a fun game that instead of a, a nightmare, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I think that's a, a lesson for all of us. Right. Um, and one of the things you talk about when you speak is that we all have trauma from this job. Um, Frank Lido, I, I who had done um, yeah. counseling through FTNY. I think you've yeah. met, you know, Frank, uh, I stole this line from him. He said uh, in one of his presentations, he said, you know, firefighters are expecting firefighters to not be affected emotionally by, by what we see is like um, someone walking through water without getting wet. Yet we continually do a lot of the things that you recognize, right? Like we, we just say, Hey, I'm fine. I'm okay. Uh, everyone else around me is okay. Let's transfer what you've gone through. And now what do you, uh, you know, what, what techniques did Dr. Mark give you that you think everybody in the fire service needs to know? And, you know, what are your biggest uh, kind of missions and, and movements right now going forward to help others? Oh man, that is such a great question. He taught me so much. Uh, he, I convinced him to write a book with me. And so we're writing a book together and we, we've been working on it for five years. It's so hard. Because we've learned so much, and I, I want to be able to share. Um, God, I wow, where to start with that? Um, give me, give me your top three. Because I yeah, think yeah, yeah. Okay, so the number one thing, and and this is so easy to say and so hard to do. It is being positive, looking at the positive in any situation finding the positive and everything I've read about resilience and the ability to endure horrific things. It's all the mindset 
it's all how you view it. It's all how you take it in, you know, and instead of why is this happening to me, just change the mindset to, Ooh, what, what is this trying to teach me? And, and just that simple positive outlook and adjusting your outlook can make all the difference in the world. And in the fire service, I think it's really hard because we see the results, right? We, we see the, the bad results. And so it's really easy to, to go, well, bad things always happen. And, and right. It's easy to be negative and to see, right. Because, and Murphy's law, if something bad happened, if something can happen, it will happen. And, and so, right. I mean, just. That's why we're called. That's right. right. Crap happens. We're called. Right. And so it is easy to go, well, it's easy to be negative. It's easy to go, well, you know, bad things are going to happen. Shit happens. Like life is hard. And it's, 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 Oh, what was me can, can very quickly come from that. Um, And so trying to adapt that positive attitude and look at everything through a positive lens, it's so easy to say, and it's so hard to do, but that, you know, that is something I've taken from him. Um, Learning to, to journal. um, And I first started journaling before I even met Foreman initially because I was afraid that by the time I went to trial, I wouldn't be able to remember anything about the call. And so I was journaling furiously. Um, But what Foreman taught me is, you know, take a moment and at the end of each day, write down three things that went well, right? That, that you learned or three lessons you learned today, you know, whatever it is, but, but looking at the end of your day from a positive outlook and that made all the difference, you know, taking my journaling and turning it into a positive journal, you know, um, daily affirmation type thing. I, that is a, is a, just a game changer. If I could share anything, that would be one of them. Yeah. It, it, it's like a Jedi mind trick, right? Whenever you aren't, aren't feeling good, like you, we use it on kids all the time. And I always say it works on, on firefighters too. You know, um, you know, I, I don't like this and chief did that and this is bulk, but you like ice cream, don't you? But ice cream tastes so good. And <laughs> right, like, right. And it, it, there's, there's a lot of science to it. So be positive write that down what's what's one more that you would you would say uh that every first responder needs to do um yeah so he taught me and i'm gonna mess this up uh five things gratitude meaning uh forgiveness something and acceptance damn it i knew i was gonna i always do five and then i name four of them but gratitude meaning forgiveness, acceptance. And there's one more. Um, oh, he's going to kill me when he sees this because he drilled it into me. And then I can't remember that, that fifth one. Um, but again, just, you know, looking for the meaning, you know, the, the stabbing for me, um, has meaning, you know, I found meaning in it. It allowed me to be a mental health advocate for my department and it, it allowed me to have a better relationship with my wife and it, it has opened a lot of doors for me. Right. And so giving it meaning and being grateful actually that it happened because I think like it saved my relationship with my wife, um, accepting that it happened, forgiving stabby, right. Not carrying that anger and bitterness toward him. Um, now that doesn't mean I don't want him in prison. I'm very happy he's there and I hope he stays there a long, long time, but I forgive him. You know, I, I don't want to carry that anger with me. Um, uh, 
Right. You're so, saying, yeah, this gave you purpose. And you had mentioned earlier that it gave you a get out of jail card kind of free to get help. Yeah. But you don't need to get stabbed, right? That's the, that's what you you really are on a mission to let everybody else know, correct? Yes, please. Um, you don't have to get stabbed to go get help. I, any calls are bothering you. Your, your relationship with your wife is struggling. Uh, you know, you're not happy you got passed over for promotion. Like what? Whatever it is, whatever that anger, frustration is, you know, you the guilt of of losing a kid on a call. Um, I mean, it, it it doesn't have to be just job related. You know, life has a funny way of kicking you in the teeth. Um, there is nothing wrong with with getting help, talking to a professional. I mean, that's what they're there for. And you know, in the fire service, the number one physical injury is a back injury. And you know, if a guy came walking into the kitchen bent over and in a lot of pain, you know, I'd go, "Hey, man, you have a back injury. That's that happens to a lot of our people." But now you got to go get surgery and get it fixed, right? Well, it's the same thing in the fire service. We have a lot of mental health injuries. It happens. It's normal. Go to a professional and get it fixed, right? Don't carry it with you. Don't, you know, and most guys are like, oh, I got it. I got it. I'm like, sure. You can limp physically from a knee injury, but God, if you got your ACL repaired, you'd be good as new. Like the same thing with mental health, man. Get, just treat it, right? Get it fixed. And then, and then I promise you, you'll actually be better, stronger more positive, you know, more fun to be around at the firehouse. Um, and, and you'd be a better patient advocate. You'll take better care of your patients. You'll be a better husband, wife, father, son. I mean, you'll just be an overall better person. Get help. A, a better advocate for uh, just to, for your community, you know, yeah. and for your family. And I think that's, that's a great uh, summary and way to bring everything back full circle that, uh, you know, crap happens, be grateful, ask why, what's the meaning. And then, um, you know, pay it forward, which is what you're, you're doing with, um, you know, this, I'd like to say this horrible incident, but, um, it brought us together and, and brought you to tell the story. And we're hoping that a lot of people will reach out uh, to you and to us and say, thank you. And, and, and maybe go get help, go, go find a counselor. Uh, we've recommended numerous times. We've had uh, a lot of leaders on this program say counseling is, the bomb as I think one of our guests said, counseling's cool. Uh, I, I believe every first responder needs to do it every, every year, even if you feel like you're doing well, like yeah. you said, we're clueless about how everyone else, how, how we treat everyone else around us. So um, I can't thank you enough for all your honesty and um, your passion and emotion and sharing all this with us. But uh, I, I got to tell you, you're not done yet. It's probably the hardest part of the entire podcast is when Janelle puts you on the hot seat and uh -huh. ask you okay. some more personal questions uh, right. that come from probably the, our greatest fan, right? Mom has one or two in there, right, Janelle? <laughs> Always, of course. All right, bring it. What do you got? All right, Ben. So you have a really amazing ability to bring humor to this very dark situation. Um, First of all, have have you always had this sense of humor? Is it, did you like really tap into it after after this incident as like a coping mechanism? I I'd like to think I had it beforehand. My family is very funny, very uh, dark and twisted. Uh, and I I'll give you the example. My little sister, I'm in high school. She's in junior high, uh, and we go to we go to like a Target or whatever, and we're shopping, and she's in front of me. Um, and right as she, she pays for her stuff, I was accompanying her and right as she walks away, she goes, Hey brother, are you going to pay for that thing you put in your pocket? 
And then she just walked away. And I didn't have anything in my pocket. She knew that. But she said that in front of the store clerk and a security guard. And I went, oh, oh, and she walked away. And the security guard stepped in and goes, son, you know, let me see everything in your pocket. And I was like, oh. And so she, you know, I mean, like, I mean, what a sense of humor that, that girl had. That's uh, twisted. Oh, it's so <laughs> twisted. But that's. That's the family I come from, man. We we well, on each other and stuff. So. You, I've seen you speak a couple of times <clears throat> about this incident, and you've got a name and like a whole ecosystem in which Stabby lives. <laughs> like, well, his his full name is Stabby Stabberton, and he is the mayor of Stabberville, and that's that's <laughs> that's the ecosystem. He's just he lives in Stabberville. <laughs> He's the mayor, uh, but yeah, I I was like. I don't want to call him by his name because I don't yeah. want to give him credit, but I think yeah. Stabby's no, I, a good nickname. I, I like Stabby. And, and speaking of family and craziness, so we all know, you know, firefighters, we were a little demented. So what's the uh, biggest prank that your crew has played on you about this incident now that you're back? Well, I mean, <laughs> so I had- That you can tell us at least. Yeah, yeah, no. So I earned a nickname, Olaf. Did I tell this story in the first episode? I don't think I did. No. So I heard a name of Olaf. I uh, I was at Fours with my crew, and you know, Fours is one of the busiest in the city, and we run dozens of calls after midnight. It's painful, and so we had this call, and this elderly woman was homeless, and she called us at like you know three a.m. And I get out of the rig, and I'm going, you know, ma'am, how can I help you? And she said, I'm sorry to bother you. Uh, there's nothing physically wrong with me. I'm just really lonely. Can I have a hug? And I said ma'am, you don't want to go to the hospital? And she said, no. And I said, so I give you a hug and then that's it. I, I can go back to bed. And she goes, yeah. And I go, oh, bring it in, girl. And I gave her a big old hug. I ended up with bed bugs and lice. Um, and so I, my crew nicknamed Olaf, the little snowman from Frozen that gives warm hugs. Well, then when I came back to work, there were Olaf dolls with knives in them. Um, and there were there were pictures of Olaf being you know stabbed a bunch of times. Uh, so th that was the kind of stuff they would leave for me around my station when I came back to work, which I thought was pretty funny. More twisted. More twisted, <laughs> yeah. More twisted. So I'm just, you've talked about journaling and a few different things. What is currently your go-to method for when you need to decompress, get away if you're feeling triggered? Do you have something you use right now that's your primary? Uh, no, I have a lot. So I, I really focus on this a lot. I, um, I, I have a long commute to work. I drive over an hour to work. And so I stopped listening to music and now I listen to podcasts like yours. I listen to audiobooks um, on leadership, on mental health. That hour now of commuting is one of my favorite hours in the day because I get, it's my time to just listen to people like yourselves, right? Doing talks and I, I love it. And so that I use to get my mind right going to work and coming home from work. Um, and my goal is to be completely decompressed by the time I pull into my driveway so that I'm 100% available for my wife. Uh, I try to leave, I got that hour and I purposely do things in that car to, to decompress. And I, I like that. Um, physical fitness, Sam, I know you're a big fan. I, it's, I mean, everything I've read, right, it is key to, to mental health is to be physically fit. When COVID hit, everyone's like, we're going to work out twice a day. And I said, I'm going to learn how to bake. 
And <laughs> I did, I got so good at it, but I have gained so much weight. So um, I'm trying to swim more. Uh, that swimming, no music, no podcasts, just me and my little world in my lane. And I, I purposely, when I get in the pool, go, okay, this is my physical fitness. And where's my brain going to go today? And I just swim and I just let my brain go loose. Um, I've, I've learned to embrace yoga. I'm the least flexible person on the planet, uh, but my wife loves it. And she is cruel because she will hold a pose and have a conversation with me. And my arms are shaking, you know, and I'm <laughs> sweating and I'm like, change the pose, you know? And she's like, no, no, let's talk more. And I'm like, ah, and I like fall on my face. Uh, but I like doing yoga with her because she's very good at it. And it, it, it is, a, again, a, you know, stretching feels really good. Uh, journaling, I do a lot, and I'm working on a book. Uh, that has taken up a lot of my time. Um, I so I took a class on positive psychology uh, from a woman named Karen Deppa. She's in Pennsylvania. You should interview her. She's awesome. Uh, but she put on a class on positive psychology, and, and so I took that. Uh, and she purposely uh, designed it for firefighters. Um, and so I took her class. Uh, God, what else? I, I do. I, if someone tells me equine therapy is a thing, I will go do it just to see what it's about. Um, and so I like that too. If you have anything that I haven't tried yet, let me know and I will go do it because I want to learn about it and see if it's something for me. So. All right. I got one more for you. Go ahead. When uh, you and I are speaking at some conferences together coming up, uh, what is your walk-up song for when they <laughs> have you present? <laughs> like a relief pitcher in the majors yep yep oh man um there's got to be something with uh with knives right there has to be a knife song come on help me out or something with sharp Ola. sharp sharp rough man yeah. <laughs> wow janelle gets a gets in it i love that's great yeah yes i like it um that'll be my song i need a walk-up song that'll be it uh again for everybody that's listening uh, hopefully you're inspired. Uh, I know I have been, and, and uh, ever since I, I got an opportunity, we got an opportunity here to have you on and speak to you. What do you want people to take from from these last couple podcasts and your story? Um, it's okay to ask for help. I strongly recommend you go to therapy, even if you don't feel you need it. Uh, for the love of God, talk to your spouse and really be vulnerable and and check in with them because it is amazing what our spouses go through while we are gone at work. Um, and I was blissfully unaware. Um, so yeah, just take care of yourselves, take care of your partners, um, take care of each other. And, uh, if you need help, get it. That's all I got. Well, very well said, Ben. I, I can't thank you enough. I know that other members of the fire service, are going to get um, a lot of value from this. And I, I can't wait to see you, meet you, continually hear about your journey. Read the book when it comes out. For those that are listening to this podcast, if you haven't heard the first episode, please go right away and listen to that. You can actually watch these episodes on the Fire Rescue One YouTube page. You can see and uh, them also on firerescue1.com under the Better Every Shift podcast. We'd love to have you email us with uh, your thoughts and feedback. Let us know if we're on something or onto something. If you have questions for us, you can reach us at bettereveryshift at firerescue1.com. Please rate, review the show. But most importantly, everybody, please take to heart the lessons that, that Ben has 
learned and lived through. And that's make sure to, to be kind to each other, help each other, make sure that you understand that you need to take care of yourself, your crew, your family. And you also need to learn something, do something and share something to make you and those around you better every shift. Thanks for listening, everybody.